2007, November 20th. Today is Lecture 40, The Saturn System. Lecture 40. Oh, when we're done, we will only have six to go. We've come a long ways, and we're now going to be out to the Saturn system. A lot of what we're going to talk about today, some of the Saturn system we've, we've learned over a previous couple of decades from the data from the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 satellites that passed by. But I would say, really, our knowledge of the Saturn system has, has been completely revolutionized by the Cassini orbiter, which has been in orbit now for, oh gosh, it was 19... 2004, when it went into orbit, Jan I'm sorry, January, yeah, 2004, January 2005 was the landing on Titan. We've learned a tremendous amount about the, the planet Saturn and about the tremendous system of moons around it. And so a lot of the pictures we're going to see today, not our cover picture, of course, is going to be coming from, the, from this marvelous Cassini mission. The key ideas today is that Saturn has 60 moons and very bright rings of bright Isis. It has one giant moon, Titan, one of the largest moons in the solar system, and not the biggest, but it's up there, and 59 smaller moons, all of which are mostly icy in composition. Of those, however, of the smaller moons that are bigger than 300 kilometers in diameter are all going to turn out to be round. So these smaller moons are going to divide themselves into the round worlds and the irregular worlds, as we'll see in a moment. I'm then going to turn the rest of the lecture after we go over some general properties into what I guess you would call a tale of two moons, Enceladus, which turned out to be a great big surprise. It's also one of the most geologically active places in the solar system. It's got an extremely young surface with water ice geysers. In fact, it's, it's an amazing place. Totally unexpected, although it was thought to have something to do maybe with the E-ring. Uh, the degree to which it's doing that has just shocked everybody. And finally, Titan, which was one of the main focuses of the Cassini mission, especially carrying the Huygens probe, which landed on its surface in January of 2005, Titan is of interest because it is the only giant moon in the entire solar system with a heavy, substantial atmosphere. In fact, it's got a heavier atmosphere than the Earth's, although, in fact, it's a nitrogen. It's a nitrogen-rich atmosphere. We only know of two nitrogen-rich, dominantly nitrogen atmospheres in the solar system, the Earth and Titan. But it's nitrogen and methane, not nitrogen and oxygen. And in fact, most recently, in the last year, we have discovered large lakes, some of them as large as the Caspian Sea or the Great Lakes on the Earth, not containing water, but containing liquid methane. So Titan is just an amazing place. Now you'll notice I dropped off this list of key ideas, Saturn's rings, because in fact, tomorrow is going to be a lecture on Saturn's rings. Certainly dropped off this slide, although it's on your notes. I'm going to show just one picture of Saturn's ring system here. And if you'll... Give me just a second here. I'm going to drop the lights in the room so we can see this in beautiful contrast. This is an image taken last year with the Cassini spacecraft. Cassini is on a series of long elliptical orbits that take it up behind the planet. And in this particular case, the sun was being eclipsed by Saturn. So what we're seeing is forward scattering of sunlight. The sun is just, just faded behind Saturn, just below my, my laser pointer there. This shows really what Saturn is, is most known for, is its tremendously beautiful ring systems here. Here are the main rings. You can see the shadow of the planet, scattering of the atmosphere around the disk of, the, of this gas giant. And you see these really bright, beautiful rings, and this very bright, fuzzy, thin ring out here called the E-ring. Now, what really makes this, first of all, I, this, is a, this is a perspective that no human being could ever have, because this is getting, you have to get beyond Saturn and the solar system to be able to look back on the inner solar system and see it. It is, to my mind, one of, 
probably the top 10 most beautiful pictures ever taken by any robotic spacecraft anywhere in the solar system, or for that matter of almost any uh, picture of space. But there's one particular detail I want to call your attention to. Just on the outside of the ring here, you can see there's a little dot inside that ring. If we zoom in on that, that dot is not a moon of Saturn. That is the Earth. It's actually the Earth is visible, seen through the rings of Saturn. This is one of a handful of pictures that have been ever taken in human history, looking back from the depths of space to our own home. So what we see here is a view of the tiny pale blue dot that we call home. Oops. Again, making it perhaps, well, I think, again, I think deservedly one of the most remarkable pictures ever taken. Well, let's go on to the moons of Saturn. We'll talk a bit more about the rings tomorrow in, in the general context of rings around all the other planets. But, of course, we'll say a great deal about Saturn's rings because they're the most extensive system. Saturn has 60 moons. That number has been increasing steadily over the last few years, in large measure due to the efforts not only of the various teams from the spacecraft that made a close pass by, but also due to the efforts of astronomer Scott Shepard, now at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism in Washington, who has been one of the primary leaders in the study for outer moons of a lot of the Jovian planets. Unlike the Jupiter system, where we had the four Galilean moons, or the four giant moons, there was only one giant moon in the Saturn system, and that's the giant moon Titan. The remaining 59 moons are all fairly small. They range in size now from about a kilometer, so something that would fit pretty comfortably on this campus, up to about 1,500 kilometers for the largest of these. There's a very clear division in the structural properties of these things at around 300 kilometers in diameter. Something goes on in the physics where basically above 300 kilometers, you have a molten interior, it differentiates, and gravity sculpts it into a sphere. Whereas if you're smaller than 300 kilometers, for a composition made mostly of ice and rock, you never differentiate. You basically stay in a regular ball of stuff. Okay? So these big ones are going to be spherical, the ones between about 300 and 1,500 kilometers, and of course up to Titan, which is a big jump in, in, in size. But those below 300 kilometers are going to be irregular, pockmarked little things. The densities have a huge range from 0.3 to 1.5 grams per cc. Now remember that the density of water is one gram per cc, and ice is just a shade under one. That's why ice floats on water at typical atmospheric pressures. 0.3 grams per cc is really low density. What could that possibly be made of? Well, what's probably going on here is that it's in fact not a solid consolidated body, but in fact it's porous, shot full of holes and gaps. And that's what gives it an overall low, body, low mean body density. These objects like this, at that kind of densities, those are probably the nuclei of comets. So this may, in fact, be a captured comet rather than a captured ice ball of some kind. Whereas when you get up to 1.5 grams per cc, again, you've got this intermediate density between water at 1, silicates at 3, so you're, in fact, dealing with something which is a mixture of ice and rock, probably down around 1.5, you're shading over into increasing amounts of ice compared to rock. And in fact, what we expect is that they're going to be rock and ice mixes at the highest densities, shading over into pretty much mostly ices when we get into the really low-density moons. Every single one of these smaller moons, with a couple of interesting exceptions, particularly Enceladus, is mostly they show ancient, very, very heavily cratered surfaces. These things are just pummeled over and over again by, by meteors over the course of the solar system's history. So we're looking at geologically ancient surfaces, probably as old as the, as the solar system itself. 
Here's a, a nice plot of the orbits of the current 60 known moons. Actually, this plot is somewhat simplified. They've removed some of the lesser known orbits in this picture just because 60 would be a terrible, look like a plate of spaghetti if you did that. A lot of the moons are associated with an inner plane or planar region aligned with the equator of Saturn, which in fact turn out to be many of the moons we'll be looking at are associated with the ring system, which is buried deep inside here. So just like we saw on, on Jupiter, there is an inner moon system, which is pretty much perfectly circular orbits, or just out of circular, not, you know, not too elliptical, aligned perfectly with the plane of the equator of the, of the main planet, in this case, Saturn. These are probably moons that, by and large, formed in place when Saturn formed. So you, you got a sort of a miniature disk of gas, dust, and ices. And again, because we're out in the frost line, mostly ices, formed there as Saturn was forming. And out of that formed a little sort of solar system in miniature. The outer moons, all of which are mostly small and irregular, all form into elliptical orbits. They've got uh, various degrees of eccentricity. Some of them are tilted way out of the plane. Some of them, in fact, are going backwards or retrograde. These are all probably capture objects. These are all objects which came in, got captured by the, tidal gra by the gravity of Saturn, and have been locked into, into elliptical orbits. Just like in the case of Jupiter, as I mentioned yesterday, many of these irregular satellites form dynamical families. You have three or four objects which share a lot of commonalities in the orbits, which probably makes you think that that commonality is a memory of once having been a single body which broke apart. For example, they may have come in, bigger object came in, collided with a moon, busted into four pieces, and those four pieces are what got captured after the collision. And they still share some dynamical memory of that. Well, here's some nice pictures of the various of these moons. These are now, let's start small and work our way up big. These are some of the tiny irregular moons of Saturn. They all have various names from Greek mythology, usually the companions of Saturn. Saturn was um, one of the names, Roman name for Kronos. He was one of the chief gods and the chief titans. And so we have various things here. They look sort of like potato-like here, like Telesto or Calypso or Prometheus. They're all heavily cratered, really ancient surfaces. Some of them are fairly shiny. These are fairly bright objects, like Janus here. So the shininess is pretty much telling you you're seeing dirty ices. These are fairly low-density objects. And they're all pretty small. These are all a few tens of kilometers across. The big moons, of course, and I put Titan up here for scale, of course. This is the giant moon of Saturn. But there are many of these uh, which have diameters up above about 200 kilometers that I've drawn in this. So there's actually a second group, which are 200 kilometers. Those are that are between two and 300 kilometers, like down here, like Hyperion and Phoebe. Phoebe, it's not as obvious from this picture, is actually irregular. Hyperion is very irregular. In fact, it's kind of flattened. It looks like almost like a flattened stone. And instead of rotating normally, it actually tumbles end over end chaotically. It's a very interesting looking moon. We'll see some close-up pictures here of this one in a second. It's got a wacky surface. And then the, when you get above 300 kilometers in size, you start getting in these fairly big uh, spherical moons. Mimas, Enceladus, and Tethys, Dione, and Rhea are shown here. And Iapetus, this looks somewhat irregular from the back of the room because there's a very strong white-dark contrast. This is sort of the yin-yang moon here. We'll zoom in on a couple of these. These are the largest of that sort of intermediate group of moons, which are up above 1,000 kilometers in radius. Diameter and diameter. I can't remember which. Oh well, it doesn't matter. Rhea and Iapetus here, Dione as well as Tethys. 
The first thing to notice here, of course, is that some of them have some very geologically interesting features. Whenever you see linear features, lines of stuff and cracks on the surface of a world, you're seeing evidence of past tectonic activity. Tectonism doesn't just mean plate tectonics. Tectonism means any kind of deep change in the surface of a planet, surface of a world, caused by inner forces. Okay. So we see a lot of these streaks. In fact, here Iapetus has this strange equatorial mountain range that seems to go all the way around the planet. And in fact, it almost looks like a walnut sometimes. It actually is some slightly flattened. Something very strange happened to Iapetus. There's a few theories as to what went on here, but no good ideas. The other thing to notice is these surfaces are very, very heavily cratered. You can see lots and lots of overlapping craters. So we are looking, even though we are seeing objects which have had some geologic or tectonic activity, it's mostly in the form of fracturing and faulting. We don't see a lot of repaving. In fact, we see tremendously uh, heavily cratered regions here. These are ices, so the craters are going to have a little lower contrast. It's a little softer material than rock, and so you don't get as, as deep a cratering, but you can just see ghosts of craters upon craters overlapping, and some really big ones hiding in here. For example, up here on Iapetus, this gigantic ring basin here. There's another gigantic crater. In fact, there's two of them here on Rhea. You can see side by side. Those are tremendously big impact basins. So these are very ancient, very heavily cratered surfaces, but made mostly of ices. Here's, uh, here's Mimas and Enceladus. Now we're going to step down the next level of size among these moons to things that are kind of 500 kilometers in size. Now, I remember seeing the first Voyager 2 pictures of Mimas coming in when I was a student at Caltech. And we had this big auditorium set up. The big Beckman Auditorium on campus had a, a by current home theater standards, very primitive video projector set up for this is like 1981. Set up in there so we could see the live data coming down from, from, uh, from Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And when this, so we'd sit in there and do our homework and watch the picture. Well, that's pretty cool. And then go back to our homework. When this picture came up, of Mimas, everyone in the room sort of stopped, looked, the room went quiet, and someone said, holy crap, it's the Death Star. And sure enough, this is a gigantic crater on the side of Mimas. In fact, the very first picture that came back from Voyager looked exactly like the Death Star in Star Wars. And then there's Enceladus. And Enceladus is suddenly a real contrast here. So we go take Mimas. The reason I put these side by side is not just to tell the story about the Death Star, but look at Mimas. Fairly icy body, lots of overlapping craters, one gigantic whack in the side here that just cracked the surface of that sucker. And then we get over here to Enceladus. We go from dark to really bright light ices, but lots of cracks, lots of tectonic activity, but there's virtually no craters on this particular sector down here around the South Pole. There's some craters up here. That's a geologically young surface. So that was a big surprise. No one was expecting to find geologically young surfaces out among the Saturn moons because none of them are close enough, apparently, to Saturn for tidal forces to be really strong. Yeah, there's some resonances that maybe should have done that, but people were taken a little aback by this. And so this is extremely young, and it's still going strong, as we're going to see shortly. Then we get down in size to some of the irregular stuff. So we're going to drop below 300 kilometers in size, and we get something like Phoebe, which again is an ancient surface completely pummeled by craters. And it's just sort of a dark, icy, irregular thing. And then, now this, this here is just playing a strange looking moon. This is, this is Hyperion. It's, it's under 300 kilometers. 
It's shaped like a flattened potato. And just look at the cratering on this thing. This thing has just gotten the hell beaten out of it. I mean, this thing is just covered of crater upon crater. In fact, you can see the outlines of a gigantic crater that's just taken a big old chunk out of this thing. And a whole bunch of rocks have fallen back down. This is just weird. So there's just some amazingly weird stuff out here around the Saturn system. Some of these things have had a really, really rough time in their past. Well, that's a lot of the curiosities. and Unfortunately, I can't even show you a fraction of the amazing pictures that have come down from Cassini. And so instead of just showing you lots and lots of pictures, I want to now step back a little bit, and we're going to pay attention to two particular moons around Saturn that have proven to have extremely interesting properties. This, there are going to be two different moons in size, Enceladus and Titan, shown in this beautiful picture from Cassini, as Titan and Enceladus were passing, at least in front of each other. The scale is not perfect, but it does show you them captured at exactly the same size. What a contrast between these two worlds, if you just look at them in just a moment. Enceladus we just saw. Airless, as near as we can tell. Bright, shiny ice surface, but geologically young over most of its surface. Titan, we don't see the surface at all. Because of a property of Titan that's made it a, a subject of tremendous interest over most of the last few years, Titan is the only giant moon of the outer solar system to have a heavy, substantial atmosphere. We're not seeing the surface here. We're, in fact, seeing the tops of the haze layer that forms in the upper atmosphere of this object. So let's start with Enceladus. It's a beautiful picture here. Again, we just the same picture I showed before. This is the brightest body in the solar system. It's about 99% reflective. Now, to get that kind of reflectivity, not, not, not polished reflectivity like a mirror, but specular reflectivity. It's actually brighter than a typical projection screen. And in fact, what we're seeing is, is bright, shiny, brand new ices. Now that's your first hint, and that was the first hint people had that Enceladus was probably fairly, had a fairly young-ish surface. Because over time, various bits of black carbonaceous goop end up covering the surfaces of just about everything in the outer solar system. Most objects in the outer solar system are actually kind of dark and kind of an off-brown, ruddy color because of the sort of patina they get on them of a lot of carbonaceous stuff. Some of it comes off comets, some of it's knocked off nearby moons, and so forth. But not Enceladus. It's the brightest thing in terms of reflectivity in the whole solar system. And people realize fresh young ices is what's going on. In fact, fresh, completely clean ices, and for it to have stayed as bright for four and a half billion years means that surface ice must be continually replenished. The other thing that happened is that Enceladus was found by watching stars pass behind it and watching it, the stars get eclipsed or occulted by the body of Enceladus, was Enceladus actually had a very, very thin water vapor atmosphere. Now, that was also a surprise. It's water vapor atmosphere. Now, most of this atmosphere is very, very thin and very tenuous, and in the cold light out here at Saturn, it's going to fall back on the planet and freeze out again. So not surprisingly, it's a frosty covered moon, just what the bright cracks look like. But it was the pictures returned by Cassini. Voyager never really got a good look at Enceladus. The pictures turned back by Cassini were just stunning. First of all, the surface is very strongly cracked and crazed. Lots of linear features. And once again, whenever you see a linear feature, you're seeing tectonic activity. This is a geologically active place. Furthermore, there's virtually no craters, at least here in the southern hemisphere portion where most of the cracks are. You see fresh, young surface. has completely or almost com nearly completely obliterated all the craters. 
So we're seeing something geologically young. Now what's really quite remarkable is notice the coloration on this. Now there's been a little bit of computer enhancement here. These cracks here on the southern hemisphere, they're often referred to as the tiger stripe features, but you'll notice they're sort of a light bluish color. That's, again, a little bit of computer enhancement to bring that up. That's freshwater ice and organics. So there's organic material being brought up from the interior. In order for there to be liquid water, there has to be some heat in the interior to be able to, to melt the ice down. So what do we got here? Well, we've got liquid water, but probably below the surface. We've got some source of internal heat, maybe a combination of tides and radioactive heating that's making it liquid. And we've got organics. And now you get an idea of why in the last year Enceladus has become such an exciting place to think about. But the big surprise came a little over a year ago when Cassini pulled out in its orbit, happened to pull into a perspective where Enceladus got between the sun and Cassini and took a beautiful picture. So here's a close-up of the surface showing these cracks, showing old craters filled in. Notice how the cracks cross the craters. So those cracks are newer, younger than the craters. So we can do a bit of stratigraphy here. We see ghosts of gigantic craters. Lots of young surfaces, fresh snow. But the big surprise came when Enceladus, with Cassini behind it, occulted the sun. Those tiger stripes are fountains. This is fountaining of fresh water ice, blowing water, liquid water and water vapor, coming up and geysering out of the interior of Enceladus and spraying out into face, space. In fact, this, is what, this particular picture here is what's known as now the famous Fountains of Enceladus picture. This was almost completely unexpected, that you would see that possibly a, a sign of repaving in the past, but not repaving ongoing. It's a form of volcanism, but it's cryovolcanism. Now, if you look at this picture, you say, well, that's pretty impressive. Look at all those streaks. Each of the bases of each of these streaks can be mapped onto one of those bluish tiger stripes. They're actually the origins of these geysers. But what really gets amazing is when you crank the contrast on this picture way up, and you get an idea of just the mass of that plume of water that's coming off of Enceladus. So this is really now cranking the contrast. We're going to add a little fake color just because it, it sort of brings up the picture. And you see that, that Enceladus is just leaking a whole bunch of stuff off of it, and it's water vapor ice. In order to power that kind of geysering, you've got to have some serious heat downside in, inside the interior. You've got to be geysering, literally geysering this stuff up. So what are we seeing? Well, what we're seeing is something called cryovolcanism. Cryo is from the word cold, like cryogenic. Okay, it's basically ice volcanism. In fact, it's one of the only three known places in the solar system of moons that are actually geologically active. Io is one of them, and the other is Triton, the giant moon of, of Neptune. What's powering this activity? Well, exactly like we saw over on Io, or analogous to what we saw on Io, it's tidal heating. Okay, but in this case, the tidal heating is aided and abetted by a lot of those other mid-sized moons cruising around Saturn. Enceladus is in a two-to-one orbital resonance with Dione. It, it completes, Enceladus completes two orbits. For every one orbit, the big moon Dione completes just on the outside of it. This resonance actually drives in Enceladus a series of rhythmic, regular stretches and tidal squeezes. As the much bigger Dione cruises by, regularly every, uh, every cycle. So this continuous stretching and squeezing due to the tides coming up from Dione 
should be sufficient to try to do some of the heating inside of Enceladus. There may be additional radioactive heating going on in the subsurface, and when you combine that with the tidal heating, is actually sufficient to melt the subsurface water. This water then works its way up to cracks in the ice crust and geysers out, and gives us the, the beautiful fountains that we see. Where that water goes, it forms this tremendous ice plume that we saw in this previous picture here. This ice plume goes off into space, but those ice particles eventually recondense out into crystals and chunks of ice and actually feeds the faint E-ring of Saturn. Now, all of that sort of makes plausible sense. You've got the E-ring and Enceladus have always been associated with each other. In fact, Enceladus orbits inside this very, very thin, tenuous ring of ice called the E-ring. And here is now the source of the ices in the E-ring. In fact, before the fountains of Enceladus were discovered, some people thought that the reason why Enceladus was so shiny was that Enceladus was sweeping up the ice particles from the E-ring. Or, the alternative view had it that the E-ring was being built in real time by Enceladus. Well, there is a wonderful picture, which, oops, which I'll show you here in just a second, showing you which way that works. Here's the current best idea of probably what's going on deep inside of Enceladus. Tidal heating heats up the rock layer deep inside of the moon Enceladus, and this heat eventually works its way up into the ice layer that covers most of the surface. At this ice layer, the pressurized liquid water actually forms a liquid water pocket. The temperature here is actually at, under pressure, the liquid temperature of water in this room. It's probably a few atmospheres worth of pressure in here. So we actually have water as warm as water in your sink in liquid form, just above the, the freezing point, just above the freezing and melting point of water. Every now and then a crack forms to the surface in one of these tiger stripes, and it blows this material out, but when it hits the surface, it gets really super cold. It's now 77 degrees Kelvin there, okay, minus 200 degrees Celsius in round numbers. At this stage, ice grains will actually act more like grains of sand than the ice we're familiar with, and it will begin to spray out on the surface. Inside this liquid is dissolved organic materials. Those organics, if you will, contaminate the ice and give it the sort of bluish appearance that you see. Plus, the higher geyser actually produces a sufficient spray that it can escape the weak gravity of Enceladus and form that gigantic ice plume. So this is our current best picture for what's going on in Enceladus. And what's really got people interested is here we have liquid water, we have heat, and we have organics. Those are the three prerequisites we know of for organic life. So now all of a sudden Enceladus, which was mostly a curiosity for being the brightest moon in the solar system, has now become one of the third extraterrestrial places in our own solar system where we are plausibly going to want to look for signs of organic life. Maybe not complex life, but certainly when you've got heat, liquid water, and organics, you've got the prerequisites. Whether it's formed there, we don't know. But certainly people are starting to ask themselves the question, what do we need to go back with to be able to answer that question? Okay, now here's the orbit of Enceladus. We're looking down, it orbits out here in the E-ring. Here's, the, uh, here's um, the various moons. Here's Dione and Tethys and Enceladus, Mimas on the inside, and Enceladus here in the E-ring and all the various other rings. So it gives you an idea of how close in proximity Enceladus is to the planet Saturn. And here's a, an absolutely amazing picture that was also taken last year. As Cassini came high up over the ring plane with the sun to its back, it looked back down on Enceladus, and now we can see where all that fountaining water is going. 
In fact, it's sitting here feeding and building the E-ring in real time. And this picture you can just see, here's the body of Enceladus, you can just see the shadow of Enceladus being cast in the, in the faint icy E-ring out behind it. This is just an absolutely amazing picture here. So we can actually see how one of these very, very thin, almost gossamer thin rings is actually built. Questions about Enceladus before we go on? Well, the other moon that I want to talk about, the second moon of our pair, is Titan. Titan is the only giant moon of Saturn. It has a radius of about 2,600 kilometers, a density of about 1.9 grams per cc, which means we're looking at one of these icy mantles over a deep, rocky core. What really gives us the fascination is that this view of, of Titan is very hazy. And the reason for that is that Titan is the only moon in the entire solar system with a heavy atmosphere. Not just little thin wisps of junk that happen to be hanging around, but a real, honest-to-God, heavy atmosphere. In fact, it's cold enough to do so. The reason why it's got an atmosphere is we're about nine and a half astronomical units out. It's cold enough out here, and the gravity of Titan is just big enough combined with the cold to hang on to its atmosphere. Here's a picture we've seen a lot. Let's see it again. This again plots surface temperature or atmosphere temperature, whichever is most appropriate, against an escape speed. And again, your ability on this diagram for any body to hold on to its atmosphere is it must be above the gases it's going to trap. So for example, in the lower half of the diagram, here are the orange lines for methane. The blue line is for water. The black line is for either nitrogen, N2, or carbon monoxide. Turns out of the outer solar system, the three main volatiles, the three main ice and gas components, are going to be methane, nitrogen, and carbon monoxide. And then the purple line is carbon dioxide. Here's Titan. Its temperature is a little under around 90 degrees Kelvin. And it's fairly massive. But even though it's a smaller mass than, than Ganymede, and of roughly of, between Callisto and Io, it's still, nonetheless, its gravity is strong enough and it's cold enough, it can actually hold on to a methane and nitrogen atmosphere. Whereas we get something like the moon, which is roughly comparable mass, but the moon is down at one astronomical unit and has no atmosphere at all because it can't hang on to any of the gases. It's got strong gravity, but it's too hot. So you need to have gravity and cold to hang on to an atmosphere if you're small. Well, here's a gorgeous picture of Titan shown silhouetted against the backdrop of Saturn there. Again, another Cassini picture. The composition of the atmosphere is known from spectroscopy. It's somewhere between 90 and 97% nitrogen, probably about 1.6% methane, and then the rest of the gases are argon and various hydrocarbons like ethane and acetyl hydrides and all kinds of funny, nasty, really nasty organic stuff going on here. No carbon dioxide or not much to speak of, no water vapor, no oxygen, but an awful lot of nitrogen. In fact, combined with the Earth, which has about a 72% nitrogen, 74%, 70-odd percent nitrogen atmosphere. You know, I've forgotten that number today. They're the only two places in the solar system that have heavy nitrogen atmospheres. Now, this is a very cold and very dense atmosphere. The surface temperature down on the surface of Titan is probably about 94 degrees Kelvin. As actually measured on the surface, that's 290 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. The atmosphere is heavy. It's got about 1.6 Earth atmospheres down there on the surface. So there's an awful lot of atmosphere being held onto it. What we see here, this bright orange color, is not the surface, but is in fact is the top of the haze layer. Ultraviolet light from the sun combining with methane and nitrogen and ethane and all these various nasty hydrocarbons 
forms something analogous to photochemical smog here on the Earth. Now, photochemical smog on the Earth is usually nitrous oxides, nitrogen and oxygen compounds. But because we don't have any oxygen, or not much oxygen out in Titan, the chemistry is going to be hydrocarbon photochemistry, and that forms some really nasty photochemical aerosols called tholins. Tholins are just sort of black, tarry, nasty things you really don't want to breathe, okay? Which are made in, by the way, in certain types of industrial smog in our own atmosphere, but they're really nasty. And there's so many tholins in the upper atmosphere, they basically form a haze layer that's many, almost 100 kilometers thick or so, tens of kilometers thick, and basically obliterates the surface from the outside invisible light. We have to go into infrared light so we can peer between the methane bands to actually see what's going on. Lower down below the haze layer are actual clouds of, of methane, methane droplets and methane ice clouds, mostly found over the poles at the present time. The surface of Titan can be seen both by using infrared light to peer through the, the, the nasty hydrocarbon phase, also the Huygens probe dropping through the atmosphere when it was landed in January of 2005, carried with it a camera, a descent camera, could take pictures. What we see on Titan, the other, on the other way we're, we're sampling the surface is using cloud penetrating radar on board the Cassini spacecraft. One of the main pieces of the Cassini mission is to radar image the surface of Titan, just like Magellan radar imaged the surface of Venus. What we find is a geologically young surface. It's got very, very few impact craters. We find some amazing landforms. There's smooth, dark plains, which are very smooth. In fact, these appear to be unconsolidated soils or unconsolidated dirt. However, in this case, the dirt is a mud. Instead of, like on Earth, you make mud out of kind of unconsolidated silicate sand and water, what you make mud out of on, on uh, Titan is unconsolidated grains of water ice and liquid methane, liquid ethane. So it's a really nasty hydrocarbon sludge. There's rugged highlands. Dune fields have been found a lot of the places where now the sand is probably something like, like water crystals, which are like rock and sand on, on, on Titan, and maybe some of these tholins actually form kind of dark grains themselves. But these are the real beauties of this world. Look at these things. Those are dendritic drainage channels. Those are signs of liquid flows, not liquid water, but liquid methane and liquid ethane. Find impact basins, and we find liquid methane lakes. Look at this right here. We have the dark terrain, and you have the flow patterns leading into this dark, smooth terrain. That's a shoreline. This is, this is a world which is as, as active as the Earth in terms of weather, but the difference is, instead of having water driving the weather, it has liquid methane driving the weather. A lot of what we know about the surface comes from the Huygens probe. It was, it was carried by the Cassini spacecraft, released on Christmas Day of 2004, oops, and landed in 2005 on January 15th, taking a two-and-a-half-hour descent by parachute, sampling the atmosphere and taking pictures all the way down. It squelched into methane mudflat and lasted for about three minutes or so before, in fact, the Titan pulled away from, turned away from the Cassini spacecraft, and Cassini then turned its antenna back to the Earth and radioed its results. It did, however, return this amazing picture. This is the first ever picture from the surface of a moon other than our own moon. This is the mud plains of Titan shown from the surface. These rocks here are probably about this big or so. They're, they're rocks you could pick up, but they're not silicate rocks. They're ice, water ice. So on Titan, 
water ice plays the same role that silica plays in sand and rocks here on the surface of the earth. And the dark bits out there is sort of a methane mud. The radar imaging of Titan has revealed immense dune fields. Each of these dunes is probably about 100 meters, long, 100 meters wide. They run roughly east-west over large sections of these plains. And they're probably about a kilometer apart. And they're, we probably think they're dark based on the color from the few methane filter band images that have been taken in the infrared through the surface. What we're seeing here is signs of wind. So there are winds in the atmosphere of Titan. These are winds in a nitrogen methane atmosphere. And they actually can form dune fields like winds on the Earth form dunes in silica grains. Now on Titan, they're forming dunes out of a sand made of water ice crystals and tholins, solidified tholins. So it's a sign of very large scale weather on the surface of this, of this wonderful little world. Now, I mentioned before that methane is to Titan what water is to the Earth. Methane plays exactly the same role on Titan that water, liquid water plays here on the Earth. 94 degrees Kelvin, which is just incredibly cold by terrestrial standards, is just between the boiling point and freezing point of methane. So this means that just like where the Earth, where you have sort of typical temperatures in the upper atmosphere kind of dangle at that freezing point, boiling point, of liquidification point of, of water, so too you get exactly that kind of multi-phase behavior in methane here in the, in the atmosphere of Titan. So you get gaseous methane in the atmosphere, but it can condense out into a liquid because it's high pressure. So as a consequence, you can get methane condensing out into clouds, forming droplets. Some of the droplets contain ethane as well as methane. And then they will begin to actually rain onto the surface. But it's a rain of methane. We see these beautiful dendritic or branching drainage flows where the, water, where the, sorry, the methane liquid has hit the surroundings and eroded channels through, flowing from the highlands down into these mudflats. We get these marvelous mudflats, which are covering the dark regions of the planet, which are water ice grains mixed up with liquid methane and kind of an unconsolidated muck. We've also begun to find, using the, the cloud penetrating radar, a series of large liquid methane lakes. Now, before Cassini went to Saturn and before the Huygens probe was sent into the atmosphere, the expectation was we could see there were dark and light regions on Titan using ground-based adaptive optics imaging of Titan. So people thought there could, in fact, be whole ethane-methane oceans on the surface of Titan. And so the worry was, in fact, that the Huygens probe would not hit the ground. It would splash into a liquid ocean. That didn't happen. That changed some of our expectations. People thought for a while that maybe there wasn't any liquid methane now on the, on the world at all. But up on the polar regions, we've begun to find, using the ground penetrating, uh, sorry, the ground penetrating, the cloud penetrating radar passes, and just in the last year, have begun to reveal very large networks of lakes and channels of actual liquids up on the north and south poles. One of these lakes up on the north polar region is the size of the Caspian Sea, the largest lake on the Earth. Those around the south pole are actually about the size of the Great Lakes. Here's a picture of one of these South Pole lakes. It's been suggestively colored here. This is actually a radar reflectivity map. Water surfaces reflect radar differently than, than jumbled ground. And so you can tell liquid from jumbled ground using radar imaging. The computer person obviously decided to color the lake region blue. We don't know what it's going to look like. Probably actually it's more or less clear, probably really nasty looking stuff. But shown for exact scale, there's Lake Superior. It's actually smaller, larger than Lake Superior. 
So we've certainly begun to find these lakes. And here's, again, a, a simply marvelous picture taken of a radar swath over the south polar region of Titan. It's, uh, it's the land of lakes, except it's now the land of lakes, Titan style. Titan is just amazing. We've only begun to just only begun to investigate some of its wonders. And certainly finding the lakes of liquid methane has been one of the big surprises and the great discoveries here of the exploration of, of Titan. We certainly want to go back, and not because we think this thing has anything that looks like the Earth, but because, in fact, liquid methane is perhaps the next way in which you might find alternative but extremely cold forms of life, according to some people. So certainly people want to understand what's an atmosphere but not a water atmosphere and water weather really like. Titans, where we're going to learn that. Okay, thanks a lot. And we will hand back your tests here because I see Mike.